Hi, this is Frank Cho, creator of Liberty Meadows and drawer of fine women. And you're listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. Welcome to episode 10 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host, David, and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. Yo, yo. Crystal. Hello. Luke, greetings, culturalites. As this is uh, episode 10, a special episode 10 of Nerd Culture Podcast, I decided to do my usual intro in a bit more flamboyant manner. Imagine, if you will, a young man with a dream. A dream to have a Nerd Culture Podcast. That dream came true, and he created that podcast, but he decided that that wasn't enough, and that all the things that he wanted to talk about with his friends, we couldn't fit into the podcast, so he created the Nerd Culture Podcast website. That website is www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which continues additional content not found on the podcast itself. Nerd Culture Podcast covers film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure, and lo, it was so. Well, gosh, your acting abilities are mediocre. <laughs> I am acting. <laughs> My God given acting ability. Why is it when you say when you say all that stuff just that all I can think of is um the Alec Baldwin character in Tim America? You can't outact me, boy. <laughs> yeah. uh, so for this episode, we have a dust jacket where we'll be looking at the stars. My destination by Alfred Bester. But first, I actually have to offer a couple of apologies. In our last episode, we said that The Thing, which is the recent version of The Thing, uh, was starring Australia's own Rose Byrne. But it actually stars America's own Mary Elizabeth Winstead. So, apologise for that, Mary. Uh, we also said that Steven Soderbergh's latest film, Contagion, was made in conjunction with WHO, the World Health Organisation. But it was actually made in con- conjunction with the CDC. We stuffed up. We admit it. Uh, in fact, one of those, I think, was holding my stuff up. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, you suck. <laughs> We're only human. But, you know, we accept That's our mistakes. Anyway. So, without even the embarrassing admission of fallibility out of the way, let's move on to The Stars by Destination by Alfred Bester. The Stars My Destination is Alfred Bester's 1956 follow-up to The Demolished Man, which had uh, actually won the first ever Hugo Award, so um, had quite a bit of credibility writing this book. And uh, what's interesting is the sheer number of writers um, who have acknowledged that this book was a massive influence on them. And uh, in fact, many people have claimed it's the best science fiction book ever written and that it has the best science fiction protagonist ever created in Gully Foil. The book is set uh, in a future when the uh, solar system has been colonised, and a war has actually broken out between the inner planets, Earth, Mars, um, and so on, and uh, the outer planets who are fighting for, I guess, independence. Uh, Gully, when we're introduced to him, um, is a fairly simple... Uh, crewman on a ship called the Nomad 
who has really no ambition, no drive whatsoever, until the Nomad is actually destroyed in a battle with one of the ships from the Outer Colonies, and Gully is left stranded, alone, the only survivor, trapped in a small uh, sort of locker, which is his only uh, little bit of air, and uh, a ship comes by called the Vorga, and uh, he thinks that he's going to be saved by the Vorga, but they just take off on him and uh, leave him there to die. And that is actually what gives him the drive and ambition to go out and seek bloody revenge on those that left him behind. Which is really becomes the then the driving narrative of the story. And uh, we follow Gully Foyle on his quest to basically track down the people that uh, left him to die. I know that uh, both Luke and David um, have told me that this book is one of their personal favourites. So let's start with Gully Foyle. Gully Foyle is an absolute monster. Yep. Like, he's a totally despicable character. So why is he so fascinating? Um, first of all, it... Okay, first of all, it starts off with the sense of isolation on the ship. Um, and I think that's where, whilst you don't necessarily feel some great love in terms of, you know, your admiration for the character, you do actually empathise with him. Mm. It's it's the, it's the isolation of being trapped. It's in a terrible place. situation to be in. It's a terrible situation to be in. Mm. Um, it's a situation that he hasn't really deserved. You know, he was just a a guy on the, a guy on the ship, probably what in low in a low menial support capacity. Absolutely. Yeah, um, specifically yeah. says it's, he was like a like a terrible grade. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, it, no no uh, no chance for promotion. Mm. No yeah, his, his actual file describes that he has no ambition whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. And so being stranded in being stranded in space, quite terrible. So not being rescued from this horrible situation, you know, I think is is quite actually a, quite a, a good justification for going off. Uh, and, and to, yeah, into, so, into some of what he does, I'm not going to say that everything he does is completely justified by not being rescued. No one can uh, deny he has the has the right to be angry. Mm. It's, it's some of the things he does is inexcusable in my yeah, opinion. But uh, absolutely, it, it but seems still like understandable he... because he's you know he's, that's that's all that he's got. But really. let's but let's be honest here. I mean, he is a murderer. And a rapist. That's what I'm saying. Mm. I mean, uh, there's, should have, there's should have been some indication of that in his character beforehand. You don't just, I mean, if, okay, it was a bad thing that happened to him, but you don't just completely change into a different person. There still should be elements of characters in the before and the after. He abruptly gets obsessed by this revenge thing, which is understandable if you've been left in space and they've left you behind, but it's just, it's just so strong and constant. There's no indication beforehand that he's an obsessive sort of person. There doesn't need to be, there doesn't need to be an indication that he's obsessive. You, mm. you basically, you have the, you are specifically told to you that he's, he's basically dumb. That's you know, my he has point. Low intellect. That's my point. Yeah, and that, so, but, a, but a, a low intellect person it would find it very easily, very easy to just to latch mm. onto one thing. So that's mm. all he has now. He just has the one thing, which is revenge. Yeah, but mm. that's not no. And he's, it's pointed out that he's a, he's not very smart, and he's just happy to go along with life as it happens. And he's not ambitious. And he, he's got you know he's basically a laid back, carefree kind of guy. Yeah, and yeah. being being left in, alone in space has been on purpose. Yeah, inspires him, and mm. so he's a catalyst for him to then oh, change his no, ways. Yeah. Yeah, and there's it, a moment where the, yeah, we're best actually describes the snap well, uh, yeah. in this process. Yeah, actually, basically, mm. he basically snaps. Mm. Yeah, I get that. I get that he snaps. But what I'm saying is, for I don't know, for me, I don't know. I'm just trying to put myself in the same situation. Perhaps yes, I would snap too. But it's such a strong, different change. 
I actually don't think the change is quite as dramatic as we're saying here. I mean, yeah. when we first meet him, he's actually surviving by keeping himself locked in this locker. A and pure will. Going out for five minutes at a time. And I think that shows a certain level of, A, resourcefulness, mm. which then becomes obviously heightened when he speaks revenge. But also um, willpower and um, the desire to survive, mm. I think, shows that there is a certain... The, the certain psychology there and then when he's left behind and that turns into hatred and rage and the need for revenge yeah it's just channeled from the survival instincts we see at the start into this totally. absolutely cold-blooded need to destroy everybody that has been involved yeah, in any way it with makes him, him sound like a robot so he's been he's, no, it's he's, like, he's he's not brain a robot. just been switched on and then that's it there's no other he well no because i think no, those he's, he's an animal already he's there. more an animal than anything yeah. else so i think those, those qualities are, the, those qualities are, were already there and we yeah, see that in that survival he's instinct. not an animal beforehand well i, I think he does though it because what, does. what kicks in what kicks in at the start is that survival instinct which is very basic animalistic which would kick in any human because any human that's no i disagree quite a lot of people in his situation i mean he was over a hundred days in space a lot of people would have given up would despair a lot of people people would do their best to survive for much they may not give up at the same point but they would it's human instinct i mean if you someone holds your head underwater you fight to to get out of it and breathe whether you want to or not yeah i agree but his character points to the fact that he would do what he does. I mean, him him surviving that long is not surprising because of his makeup, because of the the report, what the report says to him. So he has he has he has um, no is... skills and no no sense of achievement until he's thrust into a situation where he's like, well, I need to survive purely just for the fact that I want to survive, no other reason. Yeah. Well, I think what I'm getting at is the book reads like a superhero comic. So you sort of, you flip from scene to scene. There's no gradual sort of in-between bit like in other novels that I've read. You sort of gradually get to know characters. It's built up. There's suspense built up. This is, I can picture this in my mind um, drawn. Which is is fine. Which is fine. But what I'm saying is it just sort of leaps too quickly from one bit to another. It just cuts out the bit you don't need to know. Yeah. I mean, the, the no, bit that's where the stuff I want to know about. But the bit where he's normal humour and then he gets cybernetically enhanced, you don't need to know exactly how that happened. Yes, you do. Well, well, no, I do. you don't. I do. It's more important that that has happened to him. Knowing that is enough to go on the story. If you get the if you get the scene where he gets enhanced, that's just going to bog the story down. Yeah. No, it's it's going to actually speak more about his character and make me more interested in wanting to read about him. But you already know that he's gone through the change. Yeah. Because you. It's, it, it's better to demonstrate that he has it rather than demonstrate that it's been done to him. Okay. So actually seeing him touch the, touch the tooth and go through you know, the super speed and the enhanced strength, that's more important because totally. that actually tells you that he's using those abilities as opposed to being told, as opposed to being shown yeah. that he's been given them. It's better, okay. better to see it in action than to be told how it came about. Yeah. So, uh, and, it, and it makes perfect so, sense because yeah. he, he, attacks, he, he, attack, he tries to attack the Vorga Fails yep. because he's a normal human. Yep, and he gets overwhelmed. So, mm. you know, so he automatically thinks, okay, well, I need to be more than human. Mm. All right. So, so next chapter, he's now more than human. The character changes too quickly for me, for my own personal preference. Mm. So, in your opinion, it would have been better, you know, in a certain way. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Well, I, I, some... we disagree. Yeah, um, I do agree with one thing you were saying there, Crystal. The book does it does jump uh, from scene to scene quite quickly, and um, 
there are a lot of ideas here that I actually think are really fascinating and could possibly have actually done with a bit of fleshing out. Um, the science people, I think, is re really quite cool. You could have a whole story based around the science people, and mm. we jump straight from that into the the teleporting training, um, and then we jump straight from that into Pristine, and um, and there's a lot of ideas here that um, I think could have been really really fleshed out quite well but then i, I suppose the thing is that it, it is gully foil's story and um it, it is kind of written in a way that reflects his personality at certain points in the book one of the things i find interesting about it is that the writing is very actually very simple at the beginning of the story and as um gully foil becomes a little bit more cultured mm. um and a little bit more understanding of the way the, the world works the writing becomes more complex so it's as if the writing is reflecting his personality as it develops in the book. But yeah, but it does jump around a lot, um, especially in those early chapters. So it possibly could have uh, you know, used a little bit more of a sort of breathing space to sort of flesh some ideas out and maybe even flesh Gully out a little bit. But then I, I suppose it is reflective of his sort of vengeance streak that he has where he's driven and so therefore the story and the way it's written is quite sort of driven and focused as well. Yeah. on getting to Vorga. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely reflective of his personalities where it cuts out everything that he doesn't need to know about. So therefore, the reader doesn't need to know about it either. But I also think that works the um, the betterment of the world. Mm. You know, it, it, instead of having explained to me, it plays with my imagination and doesn't actually detract from Gully's story. Because the whole, the whole, the whole idea is that it's going from seeing... It's the, it's the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, It's exactly. going from seeing the... Uh, the Small, the low status, uneducated man, and watching his, the growth and his progression to becoming a member, a high status character, mm. and sit, and watching the bloody vengeance that he wreaks on those who he feels has wronged him, and Alfred Bester in uh, an essay called um, "My Love Affair of Science with Science Fiction," actually mentions that you know he wanted to write uh, a Count of Monte Cristo story, yeah, um, he said it's, um, as the basis uh, science fiction story. He then also said that. Another inspiration for the character, and particularly for where the character starts, is that he read an article in National Geographic. He found an old National Geographic article. Mm. The record was, uh, naturally I read them and came across a most interesting piece on the survival of, tor of torpedoed sailors at sea. The record was held by a Philippine cook's helper who lasted for something like four months on an open raft. Then came the detail that racked me up. He'd been sighted several times by passing ships, which refused to change course to rescue him because it was a Nazi submarine trick to put out decoys like this. Mm. And that's where the impetus for the novel starts. Mm. And yeah, I just think that's, I think it's a fabulous catalyst for the character. I think that it starts out well. It, I actually quite enjoyed the first half because it reads like the leading to a nice complex novel. And I was reading it more like it was written by Asimov or someone. But then it sort of just turns into a comic strip. And as I said before, the character just jumps around too much. There's no gradual change. Um, I would like more about his psychology. I would like to have known more about Jizz. I would like to have known more about the women in that society. But it just seems to jump from scene to scene in big, bold splashes of colour. I could see big, bold splashes of colour in my mind. and that, Which is nothing wrong with that. It's just it was disappointing from the leading... I would want. I wanted to be more of a novel. It's actually sort of interesting that you mentioned the um the comic book feeling, because he starts off his career writing comic books, that's, um, that's in the forties, 
he writes uh, writes um, Green Lantern. He created a character called Vandal Savage, who's um, starts off the whole idea behind Vandal Savage is that he's a uh, guy, uh, caveman in Neanderthal times who comes across. Dave, help me out here. Um, he comes across an asteroid that mm. uh, lands that hits the Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, in touching it, he becomes immortal. Mm. In, in comics, it's common for uh, a character to have one life-changing event that transforms them completely. Whereas in novels, I'm more used to characters having different events, maybe having one event that's a catalyst for a change, but you get more events leading up to that change or more clues as to the way the character's going to go. That's a good point. That's a good point, but I, good point. I think one of the nice things, I think, about the way that he writes is that it means that it's not as standard as other novels of the time there is something quite different and electrifying about um the language and the pacing and the plotting one of the things he says about his time in comic books was that he appreciated the um the groundwork it laid for his later writing in terms of um you know dialogue attack what have you like he was quite appreciative of having learning his skills as a comic book writer um and i think it shows i think stars is beautifully plotted hmm. Um, I really like the fact that it doesn't stay in two, in one place for too long. That he because the whole story is about seeing how far one man can go. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you stay in one place for too long, you lose that idea. The other thing we haven't really talked about is the whole idea of jaunting, mm. which when I first read, I thought that was marvelous. Mm. Uh, the ability to just with a thought go from one pl- one point in, t- in one point in space. Which, which also ties the into the, the theme, is just that he's always on the move, mm. and with the ability to joint, it's, the ability, it's made flesh, so mm. he's, he's always on the move, yeah, constantly the, the, moving forward in order to mm. get what he wants and the, do what he wants. The pace of the novel does reflect jaunting, it just doesn't quite work for the story, I don't think. Which particular part? The whole thing, the pace, throughout the whole novel, mm. it reflects jaunting, the break, it jumps yeah. forward. The, the, break, the breakneck pace yeah. doesn't work for you because you want a little bit more background I, now reflection on the character I think when is I read a novel I think I'd like to be from. able to sink my teeth in and get really involved and I didn't feel like I could do that with this one right. even okay. though the universe was fascinating jaunting's fascinating I just and the universe was big and sure. well described and it's three dimensional but I just couldn't get in there okay, so, so basically what you're saying is that the, the, the story had a whole heap of cool ideas that you wanted more of yeah. So that, that's pretty good. I mean, so basically by the end of it, you were like, well, I want more in yeah. this universe. But obviously, so Gu- Gully Foyle himself as a character is not what's working for you. Gully's not, not a great character, but that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's... I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad novel. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's I'm just not saying I didn't like it. I'm just saying there, there, it just didn't work for me. Yeah. But when you say he's not a great character, though, you're saying he's not a great character and you don't agree with his actions or you just don't think he's just a very well-fleshed-out character? I don't like him as a person, um, but I think the character's well-written with a few flaws. As I, like I was saying before, I think he, he, he changes too quickly. Probably not articulating what I'm saying. Probably. I, get I don't get enough of his psychology. I want more. I want to get inside his head. Okay, well, I, I, I disagree. I think you get everything you need to know. His mm. you know, psychology, in my opinion, is pretty fleshed out. Mm. I mean, he's, he's, he's one, of the, one of the most realised characters I've ever read. Mm. He's quite complex. I can see that he's quite complex. I just want to see the workings of it. 
I want I want to see like if I was at school I would be and, and this was a maths work I would be saying I want to see all the working out interesting knowledge fellow mm. <laughs> Um, I, well, once again, I disagree. I mean, I, I think you do see the workings out. Yep. I mean, basically, yeah, basically, enough, okay. Uh, okay. Well, maybe not enough. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I disagree. I think you do get enough. It's, I mean, he's at every point in his life, he faces a challenge to get to the end goal, mm. and he does whatever he needs to do to get over that obstacle to get to the next point, which and then he gets to the next obstacle, he gets to the next point, and Sounds he's like reasoning. Well, yeah, but what's wrong with that? I mean, he's so basically he's at each point he faces the obstacle. He get he does whatever he has to do. He learns a little more. He becomes a bit more rounded. Mm. Moves to the next point until eventually he gets to the goal. Yep. And then you know about getting to the end. But it's you know I mean, I mean it's just there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just making an observation. It sounds like a video game. Yeah. Well, like I said, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's definitely comic book elements to it, and for very good reason. Mm. So I'm not disagreeing with it anyway. In any way, I just don't see a problem with that. I mean, I think it works. I think I think a lot more books out there would work better if they were in this format. Mm. If they cut out the chafe. Mm. It but just I like got the to the chaff. point. The chaff. Did I say chafe? Yes. You did say chafe. Cut to the chase and cut out the chaff. Yeah. Is what I meant to say. <laughs> Without any chafing. <laughs> Without any chafing. <laughs> Do you feel that Gully Foyle perhaps suffers from chafing? <laughs> Maybe that's, that's the driving factor that I'm missing. Just too much chafing when he's stuck there. Too tight. Exactly right. <laughs> so as, as, as Luke mentioned, uh, the jaunting, which yeah, which we, I think we all agree is mm. is brilliant, mm. and uh, I just I love the way it's realised, and uh, the you can only jaunt to some place that you've actually seen. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And, well, it's very uh, much um, informed a lot of the nature of teleporting in uh, yeah in, certainly natural teleporting like inherent teleporting in popular th- culture. this has certainly uh, informed that in popular culture you see it in characters like Nightcrawler and yeah. mm. um, things like that where yeah the idea of being able to see a place is inherent to being able to teleport to it yeah and just the, the fact that this, the, it's called jaunting after the, the man who discovered it which mm. just by purely by accident which yep. is hilarious and then uh, I love the whole story the whole backstory of how they then you know try to kill him off and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's just great, great stuff. And it's just influenced, you know, so many other avenues of popular culture. I'm actually a big fan of uh, the Stephen King short story where uh, they, the whole family goes on a jaunt and mm. uh, they have to keep their eyes closed during the jaunt and the son keeps his eyes open and goes insane because the jaunt just lasts millions of years. It's the hilarious. Book, the book has been touted as being influential on, you know, just the Stephen King short story and on superheroics in general hmm. people link it to you know cyberpunk with uh, cybernetic, uh, an early cyberpunk type um, yeah. well, character cybernetic, cybernetic enhancements yeah, later on. it's seen as being a precursor to the new wave stuff directly another thing I love about it is that a lot of people have said it is that it's a reaction to Scientology and Dianetics in particular oh I haven't heard that um, another thing that so that, that, I love that, it even more now. The, the, that idea was posited by the Oxford uh, Companion to Science Fiction in which it listed The Stars My Destination and June as being reactions to the psionic Superman created by A.E. Van Vogt and um, L. Ron Hubbard when they were writing short stories for Astounding. The essay mentions um, the first meeting between Bester and John W. Campbell Jr., the um, legendary editor of Astounding magazine back in the 50s, in which... Bester was in there for a story conference. John Dowie Campbell disagreed with a certain aspect of the story. He didn't agree with the Freudian aspect of the story that um, Bester had submitted. And he wanted. He said that Freud was dead 
and that psychiatry was dead and that the thing was going to change the world was Dianetics. Wow. And Campbell tries to convince him further. One of the things that he says is, your mum tried to, you know, kill you in the womb with a coat hanger, you just don't remember it. To which, at that point, Bester does everything he can to back out of the conversation. Wait, what? How does... What? How does this guy know that his mum tried to abort him? Okay, no, it's, it's it's Dianetics. It's the, it's the Dianetics standpoint, and that's theory. That and your confusion there is shared by Bester. He's very much, what the hell is this guy talking about? And the Demolished Man and the Stars My Destination, and subsequently June by Frank Herbert, um, are seen as reactions to things like Dianetics. The A. E. Van Voigt and L. Ron Hubbard were working on these perfect humans with these you know, psionic powers, and that's then reflected in Scientology and Dianetics, that we're all going to be superhumans with uh, psychic powers, and everything's going to be wonderful, and that's what's going to change the world. Besta and then comes along and writes The Demolished Man and The Stars My Destination, where the, the lead characters are effectively the complete antithesis of that. Uh, another another interesting aspect of the book is that uh, telepathy. Hmm. Who I mean, you were saying before with the the Alron Hubbard type characters, and they're all like you know, psionic Superman hmm. and all sort of stuff. But in uh, Bester's world, they're extremely rare. There's hmm. only like three true telepaths in the world. I think hmm. one of them's like a child mutant child yep. thing. I really oh. like the one way telepath. I've not yeah. read and, a bunch uh, of those before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, the tally send. Uh, mm, yeah. girl, which you know, so I mean, and because I mean, in in our world, that ability would be amazing, and she'd be a you know, instant celebrity and you know, mega rich. But in Bester's world, it's actually a detriment, mm. and uh, she's you know tossed to the side because of it and stuff. Although she becomes you know vitally important later on. Mm. So it's I mean, it's just, I found that uh, very interesting. It's just uh, well, there are some pretty, there are some fascinating supporting cast members in this book as yeah, well. Yeah, um, I, was, yeah. I think Prestine, the mm. businessman. Um, who is the the owner of Vorka? Yeah. Is an absolutely fascinating character, and the, and the people working for him, the Mister Prestos, the Mister Prestos, yeah, <laughs> it's the same in every every story. <laughs> yeah, there's, and that's I think that's one of the things that's quite amazing about this book is that there are so many ideas thrown in, and so a lot of those ideas, um, you know, from other writers, a lot of those ideas would actually be the basis for an entire novel themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he just bombards you with one interesting, you know, idea after another. The supporting characters are mad. My favourite supporting characters are actually uh, Dagenheim, yeah, and, um, and Jan Yuval, Jan Yuval, yeah, Jan Yuval. Can you pronounce it? The, I've always the Yuval. Yuval, yeah, Jan yeah, Yuval. Yeah. Those two are awesome, and yeah. they get their own show. <laughs> yeah. They seriously could, but that's yeah. that's the yeah. great thing is yeah that they want as I was sort of saying they would be main characters in novels by other writers and yet yeah. here they are as supporting Dagenheim, cast. Dagenheim the, the Death Mask like <laughs> <laughs> shuts things down with his radioactivity and stuff. Yes, they can gets, only spend can only spend a certain amount of time, time with people before they. Yeah, know how he, eventually he gets with uh, Jizz, who uh, yeah. Crystal mentioned before, and they've got to have you know like blessy glass between them and bed and stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just hilarious. One of the facets of the book that I really, really like and admire is the synesthesia section. The text changes in order to incorporate what Gully is seeing and feeling at that point. So mm. uh, for anybody who doesn't know what synesthesia is, it's actually the ability to experience uh, sights and sounds and tastes of what our normal senses through colours and uh, alternate sounds and, and tastes and stuff like that. So instead of 
instead of seeing the color green, you would actually feel the color green or hear it or hear it or whatever. It's just it's, just, it's amazing, amazing stuff, and one of my one of my favorite uh, psychological <laughs> things about the human race. And uh, but in the book, it's actually interpreted in different fonts, uh, different ways of writing on the page. It's, it's almost uh, you know drawn and stuff like that. And yeah, just, there, there are patterns on the page. Yeah, patterns. It's just it's just an, an amazing sequence, and it's in my opinion, it's the the literary equivalent of the 2001 space tunnel hmm. uh, when it goes in the monolith, which of course there is a literary equivalent because there's a book 2001. <laughs> but uh, when I first read it, it was just that was the, the first thing that popped in my mind because hmm. I actually had no hmm. idea what synesthesia at that at that point. This is pre uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> Google and stuff like that. But uh, it's just it just blew my mind. It was just well, this is it's like like a weird acid trip on the page, and I've never seen anybody beat it in terms of its description. Anyway, so uh, my favourite bit in the book is uh, right towards the end. Um, we established that Dagenheim, uh, because he's radioactive through an accident, uh, affects machinery and stuff like that. So all the main characters are there. They're having this uh, massive argument. And they're basically they're, all the secrets are now revealed, and they're trying to convince Gully to uh, give up the uh, the pyre. Which nobody even we didn't even mention our review, but anyway, all the Burning Man, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, and and, and his uh, secret, which is, I won't reveal it for us actually. I, I really want you people to read this book, read this book. So I'm not going to reveal the end. So I'm not going to reveal Gary's Gary's secret. But uh, so they're all discussing, it, and, and uh, Presigen's uh, radioactivity disrupts the robot bartender, who then for some, for some bizarre reason gives him the greatest advice in the book. That anybody's actually been able to manage to do. He's the first. He's basically the first being to talk to Gully as an equal, and give him some advice. Mm. It's just so left field. That I just thought this is like a Monty Python sketch. Yep, it's unbelievable, <laughs> and uh, it's hilarious, and it's poignant, and it's moving, mm. and it it just makes perfect sense. And Gully's like, sure, and it goes up and does it. So yep. he, he, the advice that the, bar, the robot bartender gives him is just. Just brilliant, brilliant stuff, and it just never fails to bring a smile to my face. I'm just, it's hilarious. Yeah, I agree with that. This fantastic moment. The the entire novel builds up. I love the fact that it's all, you mentioned a Monty Python sketch, but I've always sort of seen it as a bit of a Charlie Chan parlor room scene. Yep. I really right. love it. But I also love it because it's now the one moment where, without giving things away, yeah. Gully gets to be the hero. Yeah. And it's it's sort of the one moment. It's the one moment we've all been waiting for, and it needs to happen right at that moment. And yeah. it makes for the first time he makes the right decision. Hmm. Um, I'm also a fan of when Jeffrey Fulmile initially appears, yeah. and that scene he has with Olivia, and they're just sort of arguing under the um, under the dome, and they get the um, the asteroid field and the colours and the lights, and he's talking about the synesthesia. And I sort of got that moment. Then I've always yeah. it, not necessarily a great story point as such, although their conversation is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just the image of them standing under this, you know, silent, silent night, and then suddenly it erupts into this... Yeah. I'm, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. And, mm. Yeah. And uh, the fact that she can see his face and yeah. stuff like that. Obviously, I'm also a big fan of his entrances. It's because, because in this world, jaunting has made normal standard travel obsolete, and so all the rich and powerful people, you know, go out of their way to travel normally. Mm. You know, cars mm. and buggies and you know, all sorts of stuff. And uh, when Fumile shows up in a train... With the track that is laid in front as the train arrives, yeah, it's like that's unbelievably cool. Yeah. and his very first appearance when he gets cannon shot out, out, of, the cannon, shot out yeah. of the cannon <laughs> and <laughs> lands in his place, and I was like, I'm actually, I mean, I actually totally agree with what Chris was saying before in that uh, part one and part two. To me, when I very first read this book, because I've read it multiple, multiple times now, of course, um, it really it was really jarring. It's like it had, like it had, 
like all the cool sort of revenge, revenge, revenge type stuff. You know, action, action, action. And then you get this this former old guy clown show up. And I've never been a fan, never been a fan of circuses. I've never been a fan of clowns. But at first I was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Who is this retard? Bring me Gully back. What's going on? Until eventually, then you know, it sort of grew on me. But yeah. I, I agree with like, my first switch, reading. He switches from an introvert to an extrovert, which is. It's a very sudden change until yeah. it's then explained later on what's going on. But it's, mm. but uh, it is, it is a very abrupt change. I agree. I totally agree there. But uh, but he grows on you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, the entire New Year's Eve sequence involving Jeffrey Fourmile, from when he first appears all the way through to when he actually gets to Pristine's party and meets um, Pristine's daughter. That entire sequence is possibly, probably my favourite part of the book. Yeah. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. I love the arrival by train and the assembly of the train line. and But just the different arrivals through the different parties and then, um, so seeing the, the clown, the buffoon side of Gully, but then sort of interlaced in that is still that quest for revenge because you then see him you know, sort of establishing the facade mm. and then using the facade to cover the fact that he's actually trying to get information about yeah. uh, Vorger and to track people down. Um, I think that entire sequence is mm. absolutely brilliant. When he sees um, Jizz at the party. And then when he sees Jizz at the party. And has to leave the room because he's, yeah. he knows he's going to react in some way. And, yeah. stuff. and then her reaction yeah. uh, to at first claim that she's given him up. Yeah. And then to say, then, then you find out that she hasn't because she wants to see how he reacts to that. Um, I just find that entire sequence of the book fascinating. My other favourite part of the book is the, actually the synesthesia. I, I love to see uh, visualisations of language mm. and sort of clever uses of that in books, and I think that whole sequence is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, it's not in uh, some copies of the ebook. So, ebook, you suck. So, I mean, it doesn't end there. There's there's lots of other awesome elements to this. I mean, like uh, Richo said, the, the people, the scientific people on the asteroid, I mean, do it because it's logical and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Awesome. Um, the Burning Man sequence, mm. it's awesome. It just, I mean, it's just, there's so much awesome stuff. I mean, the plastic surgery, the, he's, uh, the he's, freak show. his complete comic booky action man commando enhancements that he gets where he just wipes people out, left, right, and out. And, uh, yeah, it just goes on and on from there. So... I cannot recommend this book enough. It is actually my favourite science fiction book of all time. And uh, naturally, I give it five out of five looks. This is my my favourite science fiction of all time as well. And it's my second favourite book, bar none, of all time. Wow. So it, like, this ranks not only high in science fiction echelons, but just in literature in general. I give it five looks. I give it two and a half looks. The overall concept of the book and all the exciting ideas... Um, if it was fleshed out more and I could sink my teeth into it more, I would give it maybe four and a half. Wow. Only because I don't think it's as good as Foundation, which I gave five. Um, but yeah, um, I bring it down to two and a half because of that. Fair enough. Um, I give the book four and a half looks. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think Gully Foyle is an amazing character. I might have given it uh, five looks, but there were some bits where it did jump a little bit too much for me and I would have liked to have had certain sections fleshed out a bit more but yeah it's still a fantastic book and still gets four and a half looks awesome read this book thanks everyone next up The War Room (laughs) 
So for this edition of War Room, we're going to be discussing sci-fi predictions that came true. So sci-fi is renowned for its ability to include you know, far-reaching ideas, sort of very early science fiction or speculative fiction, whatever, uh, has a slew of items that they said would exist in the future. And uh, now that we're actually hit now in the future of a lot of these books, <laughs> so we're in the time period that a lot of those books said would be the future, that we're living the dream, uh, I thought we'd discuss some of those things that actually did actually come true and who said that they would, all that sort of stuff. So we're going to go around, round table, like we did for the uh, DC Comics New 52 stuff, but uh, it won't be as long, because <laughs> 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 that was just huge. Signing off with me, because I'm the host and I'm in charge. I'm going first. Uh, so there. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Is Apparently cool? nothing. <laughs> he called automatic shotgun. <laughs> so for my first one, I'd like to talk about geosynchronous satellite orbit. Geosynchronous satellite orbiting was imagined by R.C. Clarke in his essay, Extraterrestrial Relays, in Wireless World magazine from 1945. He came up with this idea that at the time was unheard of, and then later then become just unbelievably accurate in the prediction of just how these sort of things worked. The idea that we could have a network of satellites orbiting the globe at set orbits that uh, could then communicate with each other and with us on the planet. It's, it's unbelievable. And would then it would eventually keep their same position and be able to track. It's, it's unbelievable and eventually then led to global communication. So he's a very smart man, R.C. Clarke. It's such an awesome prediction that they now often uh, call those orbits Clark orbits in his honour. Not officially, but it's pretty, a lot of people do it. That's what we do. Mm. Uh, so next up we have Richo with home computers. The personal computer has been an absolute staple of science fiction, uh, right sort of from the from the Golden Age period. There's so many books talked about having our own little personal information devices and uh, personal computers in our homes. Um, I won't mention any specific writers but there's so many of them there and um you know due to people like the recently departed steve jobs and others working um in silicon valley and around the world and the introduction of micro technology um every home now has at least pretty much one often more computers they're everywhere we have instant access to information sources we can communicate with uh, other people through um, email through video conferencing the the personal computer has completely changed the world I think and uh, it's great to see that this was one of the predictions that actually came true it's actually created a global community and a global communications network with the addition of of course the geosynchronous orbit satellites as well we even have personal computers in our pockets exactly right mm. thank you Richard moving on to Crystal with video conferencing well, leading off from that last statement, um, mine was video phones. Hugo Gernsback, in a story called Ralph 124C41+, had something called Telefot. So it's as early as I could find anything that sounds like a, uh, a video phone. I haven't got the date for you, but in the show notes we'll put the date. And then in uh, you see the video phone in various science fiction movies, pretty much anything you can think of from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, the space, 2001 Space Odyssey, Space 1999, Star Trek, Total Recall, Blade Runner, um, but ev even in, in the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, the Jetsons, you see it used 
constantly. So I, I'm really stoked that in the time we live in now, we have things like Skype and FaceTime. We can actually talk to each other face-to-face over our computers or our phones even. So we have video phones, people. Maybe not as widely used as they are in the Jetsons, like everyday use. We don't pick up the video phone to call people. But it is widely used, especially those people who want to contact people overseas and don't want huge telephone bills. Video phones is cool, but uh, I don't think they realise just how ugly some people can look when they, <laughs> they haven't showered or you know, done the makeup <laughs> and stuff like that. I mean, I've done a couple of Skype calls early, early, early in the morning, and uh, it's not the best. <laughs> it's not something you want to be seeing. But uh, but you other than that, move the computer out of the shower, mm. <laughs> out of the toilet. Mm. But uh, it is uh, it is a cool concept. Mm. I would think that's probably the telecommunications aspect of science fiction is probably the big thing that it predicted that it essentially got right. That mm. you know we would all be talking to each other, not just via letter, Morse code, telegraph poles, letters that we would actually be talking over long distances face to face. Yeah. Well, the little holographic think... communication things like in Star Wars would be cool. Yeah, and that's they're and they are working on the technology for yeah, that. They're yeah. on their way. They're getting there. We'll um, get there, people. <laughs> Luke, we yep. have submarines. Submarines. Now, um, the story that I'm referring to, of course, is going to be 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne and one of the most famous, not just submarines, but vehicles in science fiction, which is the Nautilus. Um, and it's interesting because the su- he didn't invent the submarine per se. There had been ideas for developing a submersible aquatic vehicle um, before that, but... He, uh, the those ideas were generally little more than diving bells. Yeah. Um, they tended to be you know very small pod like, one maybe two man if the design had allowed for it. Um, and they were essentially just an, an overturned boat yeah. under, under the water under the with water. people walking along. Um, well, let's say going back as far as guys like Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci who actually yeah. developed a, mm. actually what. Uh, the designs for what would have been a working model. Yeah. It actually could have yeah. worked. Um, but what he did was, what I think Verne's contribution to submarine design and the way that submarines were used was that he sort of envisioned more spaceship underwater seas um, or colonies, um, which hadn't been factored into designs and thought about, you know, they were just sort of seen as more, you know, things that we can do under the water. And that was the first big leap for submarines. And the other one was the way in which they were used. He, do, he does try and have Captain Nemo do a little bit of underwater exploration, but the really important thing is that they are used for military conflict. Mm. Um, and they, you know, that he's a Captain Nemo was a terrorist, and the world's going after him, and he's got this unbelievably powerful vehicle to fight them back. Um, and as has been shown in world in both both World War, particularly by the Germans, the submarine became a very important vehicle for destruction. Yeah, I think that's. I, th- I don't think we can understate Jules Verne's contribution to the development of submarines at all. Hmm. I totally agree. The Nautilus is awesome. Hmm. <laughs> Nautilus, yeah, that, that's pretty much the bit you got from that whole thing. Onto it. it was like, no, you I, said, yeah, the Nautilus is awesome, and you've got, yeah, you're imagining yourself. I wouldn't put it in my top, as captain of the Nautilus. In my top five uh, list of cool science fiction vehicles, but it's definitely up there somewhere. Hmm. I quite like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen version, hmm. yeah. which is mad. And that's the comic book League of Extraordinary Ver- Gentlemen version. Well, even the film version looks okay mm. when they're not in it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I try to ignore the fact that the film even exists. Oh, the film's an absolute abomination. But, uh, you know, the Nautilus itself was okay. Mm. I mean, you know. <laughs> and trying to imagine how, an, how civilization might 
work underwater as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not quite the close quarters bunking that they have in modern submarines, but even so, you know, people living in close-knit communities having to work together to achieve a common goal, which is what our submarines work. Yep. Sequest. Sequest. Ugh. Which should be just be called Star Trek in Star Trek in the Ocean. Underwater. Yeah. It's a poor man's Nautilus. The sequest is mm. terrible. Had a dolphin. Bloody hell! That was excellent. Yes, was very that very was good. Excellent. Okay, so back to me again. Ooh, everybody get excited with tablet PCs. Mm. Now uh, I'm actually reading the show notes on an iPad as we speak. It's absolutely amazing just where. Uh, Tablet PCs are in the world. Are you using applied futuristic technologies? Oh, listen to us, everyone. We're in the future now. He's reading his notes off a tablet PC. Mm. So follow it on kind of of uh, from what uh, Retro was saying with uh, personal computers. So they've actually become so integrated now into our society. I mean, everybody's got one basically. So now they've actually been reduced down to the tablet form, which the earliest implementation of tablet PCs that I can think of is in. 2001 a Space Odyssey, the movie where Dave and the other guy, Frank, <laughs> Frank, <laughs> um, oh, Frank. Uh, reading the daily news on their tablet PC, which are scarily like iPads. Giant it's, iPads. It's, so, I mean, there was obviously, there was a lot of uh, laughter when the iPad was announced, you know, it's, you know, the eye tampon and all that sort of stuff. I mean, but um, it was... I never heard that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's You're just not going to the right website, apparently. <laughs> some people oh, some people are. thought the name was a bit silly. I didn't see any problem with it, but, you know, what can you do? And, uh, but funnily enough, in 2001, they are, in fact, called Newspads. So there you go. Um, probably not as advanced as, as the tablet PCs that we have now, which are, you know, essentially mini-computers, movies, uh, downloadable content, newspapers... The whole kit and caboodle, comics. I use mine for comics and uh, stuff from there. So it's, uh, but it's still quite clearly a tablet PC, and it's even it even it has like touch like touch controls. It's amazing. So uh, thank you, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley. Next up, we have Richo again with personal communicators slash mobile phones. One of the earliest sci-fi devices that kind of captured my imagination when I was a little kid was uh, Dick Tracy's little. Um, communicator phone that he has his little tv phone um that he wears on his wrist to contact people and you know later on you see that uh, similar kind of um technology and things like the communicators on star trek and um when we were first sort of discussing this topic it didn't even really occur to me because mobile phones are so commonplace these days everybody has one but really the modern mobile phone is the little video wristwatch that Dick Tracy had. It is the personal communicators that they have in Star Trek. So it's the realisation of that instant communicator. And we all carry one now. Hmm. We all have them. And it's, I think, probably the biggest, other than personal computers, this is one of the biggest um, realisations of uh, what was, in the past, um, a science fiction standard. I love the scene in Boston Legal where William Shatner's character flips open his mobile phone and it makes a little communicator. <laughs> My favourite uh, early mobile phone is uh, Getsmart's shoe phone. Oh, yes, yeah. classic. Gold. Mm. I hate mobile phones. This is one of the most disappointing predictions of the future ever made. And yet you're carrying one as today as we speak. Out of necessity. That's because you make him. It's hard, it's, it's hard to get you on that damn phone. That's right. I hate it so much I don't talk on it very often. 
Okay, so up with Crystal with the internet. Interwebs. You can find anything on that internet. <laughs> the internet. In an 1898 short story from Mark Twain called From the London Times of 1904, he describes an invention called the telectroscope. Oh, you can actually read this whole story online. I'll post a link. It's not exactly talking about computers because he didn't have a frame of reference, but the whole system sounds like the internet as we know it today. The World Wide Web, not the internet, because as we know, the internet existed as far back as the 60s and 70s as a military thing. The World Wide Web was created in 1991 by Tim Berners-Lee and became more widely used with the advent of the Mosaic Browser in 1993. But, but way back in 1975, John Brunner's novel, The Shockwave Rider, imagined a, a continent-wide information net. It had hackers that broke into it, it had identity, th- identity theft, it had computer viruses and worms, and many of the terms used in his book are now widely used today for real, actual things that happen on the internet. Uh, William Gibson is often credited with coining the term cyberspace in his 1991 short story, Burning Chrome, and... In 1990s Earth, David Brin imagines the streaming audio and video clickable hypertext links, which is pretty much how the internet works today. And in a 1989 short story, The Organist, based in Isaac Asimov's Foundation universe, Orson Scott Card also creates a linking system similar to today's hyperlink. Well, what I think is interesting here is um, <laughs> this is an instance where really the science fiction writers of the 70s of eight and 80s have had a massive influence on the internet as you say all these terminologies and ideas and mm-hmm. uh things that are being used they're being off you know names are being taken from the novels yeah. and actually applied to the technology so this is an instance where really the science fiction writers are completely informing the yeah. technology and it's actually and quite plus amazing the, I to mean, see. the mark twain prediction like mm. so early on yeah and it's interesting where he, like he actually talks to somebody in like hong kong or something in the book doesn't he all over the, the story world. yeah, all yeah. Over the world. like now give me hong yeah. kong and now give me london yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting too because the, the growth of the internet was so quick that I guess they had to grab terms from science fiction. Mm. Mm. Couldn't think of any of their own. Where else would it come from? Well, I mean, some of those term, some of that terminology was already entering the the popular culture because of yeah. things like the cyberpunk writers. Yeah. So just incorporating it into the technology, I think, was a smart move on the part of yeah. the designers because it was using the existing terminology. So people already had a concept yeah. of what it was they were dealing a with. Frame of reference, yeah. yeah. Or, or they've read it in the science fiction. Like, yeah, oh, so we can plus, do this now. Yeah, exactly. The people yeah. making the internet were all science fiction. I think anyway. it's a bit of give and take there. Yeah. 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 I'd like to say that you know I'm waiting for the day where the internet becomes self-aware and enslaves all humanity. And that is, um, end that with this little point, which is that my cybernetic, ov- my cybernetic worldwide overlord, I salute you. Please don't kill me when it happens. <laughs> Up next, Luke, with globalization. Okay, so with this one, I was thinking of globalization in two terms. One in which the the one world government, which has been um, almost a staple of particularly space opera science fiction, if you go back to things like um, the Lensman and the Captain of Future stories, Earth is living in you know sort of a united peace with it, with itself, and it's those pesky aliens we all have problems with, which hasn't happened yet. But the other the the interesting the other interesting thing about globalization um, is the corporate mentality that has entered into that. So instead of one nation under um, one government, it, we're almost becoming one world under under one or a group of corporations. It's gone to the stage where corp- we now look to corporations, or corporations feel that they must get involved in the workings of everyday society. Um, and the thing that struck me was OCP and Robocop, where the omni-consumer products 
um, getting involved with the police department because that they, they that way they can funnel weapons and their technologies into um, the police department and sell them that way. And it struck me there's a documentary called The Corporation, which came out in the early 21st century, and there's a moment where a guy from Pfizer, um, the drug company, um, is tell is talking about the contributions that Pfizer is now trying to make put back into the community. And what Pfizer was doing was that they had taken over the security and maintenance of uh, one of the local subway stations, what have you. And when I saw that, I automatically thought of omni-consumer products. And that's exactly what omni-consumer products does. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it's that way of making sure that we are, we're looking after community, but we're actually putting our technology and our brand in as many places as we can. I mean, there's so many instances of that in uh, fiction. I mean, you've got mm. Blade Runner. You've got uh, Stars by Destination. Mm. I mean, where the great houses are, are named after corporations yeah. that existed in that time anyway. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the Esso family and you know, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But, uh, it, but that's actually, that, you're right. I mean, that is actually happening mm. right now. I mean, politicians are influenced by the people who help pay their way to power. Yeah. And the people that help pay their way to power are the corporations. Yep. Mm. So it's. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if you know in the in the not too distant future, it's you know the BHP who's calling mm. the shots. Mm. Yeah, it's surprised. it's almost Big Brother by way of the stock market, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, and the the complete control over the media mm. that some corporations have. You know, Fairfax well, control limited. over control control over all aspects of life. Yeah, from as you say, the the private police forces that we're seeing now from companies like Halliburton. Yep. Uh, that are operating around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing it in popular culture. You're seeing it in social culture. You're seeing it in politics. Uh, and their corporations are more powerful than governments. Yep. And they, as the point you were making, they operate internationally. They they can cross borders instantly. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're a global force that far outweighs anything that most governments can do. Pretty scary. Well, we're mm. becoming a global community with the internet, uh, we can communicate with the other side of the world instantly now. Um, everything's just becoming global. It's, I think it's a natural progression. Using yeah. Clark's uh, geosynchronous satellite orbit. And we're reading all of this <laughs> on our PC tablets and our mobile phones. <laughs> and let's not forget our personal home computers. It's pretty creepy. It's all interconnected. Okay, so back to me with CCTV. So CCTV, obviously the most famous uh Inter- interpretation of it would be George Orwell's 1984. Is everything is controlled? Big Brother, cameras everywhere. You're in your private home. It's just, I mean, well, actually, there is no privacy at all. Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. Where it's, it's paranoia and suspicion, and everything is watched by these faceless people in the background, and everything's controlled. Which was, uh, of course, published in 1949. So, and uh, there's no doubt that that's happened, especially in London, where there's a camera. On every single corner, and uh, and every place in between, it's 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 amazing. There's cameras everywhere, so uh, the UK's living the uh, 1984 dream. Uh, it's kind of scary, and uh, it's happening. I mean, it's it seemed a bit far fetched back then, but now it's just it's a normal way of life. There's cameras everywhere for all sorts of reasons, but those reasons can be easily twisted into whatever the people who are using those cameras want. And not only that, I mean, you've also got cameras on phones and stuff like that, so it's, it's, it's there's cameras everywhere. There's no escaping the lens, really, so it's, CCTV is kind of scary. 
Well, what's interesting too is that uh, the CCTV approach has now actually become part of entertainment culture as well, mm. with shows like where they're actually naming the show Big Brother yeah. because they put cameras everywhere in the houses and that they're watching these people and then we are then sitting down to watch these people well, through the CCTV. So even even from entertainment purposes, it's just bizarre to, mm. to behold. And we've also become Orwellian in our approach. Once upon a, a few years ago, when CCTVs were you know being placed up there was you know furor this is an invasion of our privacy and now we've taken the Orwellian stance of well they're there um, there's not much we can do about it and we mm-hmm. take a very reactive um, regressive pushback yeah so we're slowly slipping into the mall whereas yeah. you know they're going to appear and they're here and what can you do and mm. and there's you know nobody seems to care anymore it's mm. kind of bizarre yeah. I, mean, I don't understand it's... why the people of London don't rise up in protest on the one hand, there's a privacy aspect to it. And, okay, you're invading my privacy. On the other hand, there's a crime-fighting aspect to mm. it. I mean, if you're yeah. robbed or raped or bashed in the street, the police have got a good chance of catching whoever did it. I'm not saying that they... Yeah, I, I, look, I'm agreeing. I'm, so I'm there's, not saying there's that for it against. Yeah, there's, they could, there's not good things for it. But it's just, just it's a matter of time before we get cameras in our homes. I, I do yeah. not doubt that at all. There was a rather humorously subversive uh, thing that uh, one of the bands in England did. They actually couldn't afford to make a video clip, so they just went to areas around London where they knew the CCTV cameras were and basically just stood in front of those cameras and danced and sung the song, went around to a whole bunch of locations and then actually put in an official request to get that footage sent to them because it's footage of themselves. And then they used it to actually make a video clip. Very as cool. a way of highlighting the fact that these cameras were everywhere in London. Actually, yeah, that's, that's awesome. There's, actually, there's, there's another video called, called uh, You Don't Know Me, which uh, I can't remember the artist, but uh, it's basically uh, a, a, the queen who like dashes away from the, the, her bodyguards and spends a night oh, yes. <laughs> travelling around London yeah. <laughs> buying kebabs and beating people up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all filmed through the CCTV cameras. Pretty, so yes, obviously so there are people who are trying to subvert this technology and use that to highlight that it exists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for the most people for the most part people just seem to now accept it. And it's, even embrace it's it. It's scary. It is scary. So we'll stick with Richo for space travel. Ah, uh, space travel. Going back as far as H.G. Uh, Wells and uh, books like The First Men in the Moon and Jules Verne with his space travel. Yes, and uh, books like John Carter of Mars. Uh, space travel has been one of the most prominent staples of science fiction and so many books and films, television shows, radio shows, so many of them feature the idea of us actually getting into spaceships and flying off into space. and well, uh, or abducted into space, yeah, that's true. <laughs> the amazing thing is is that we've actually started to make the tentative steps. We're certainly, we can travel into space. We've fired rockets, manned rockets into space. We have things like the Space Shuttle, which is now just being decommissioned. So we have the ability now to actually fly into space. Now, granted, we've gotten as far as, you know, the moon. We certainly haven't gotten as far as colonising Mars or reaching monoliths flying around Jupiter. Unless you count the, uh, the abductees. You know, oh, well, who knows where they've been. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's... And re- really, the, in the introduction of space travel and certainly things like the moon landing, which we will get to later on, was probably the most significant 
advancement in technology in the latter half of the 20th century, at least until the creation of the personal computers and the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're totally right. That is a big one. I mean, where is science fiction without space travel? Exactly. Really? I mean, it's pretty amazing. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we can travel in space. Now you can spend a ridiculous amount of money and go on one of those virgin... That's right. Planes like that a, take you up into the outer atmosphere. It's like or a million like, dollars or for something. Like two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take two trips next year. But it's but, but you can also you can also uh, be set up if we're like a Russian thing yeah. or something. Kind of take you up there or something into like orbit, which is pretty cool. Once again, it's like a billion dollars. But you know, oh well. But it, I mean, these are the beginnings. You know, these are the beginnings of the you know, personal space travel hmm. ideas that you see in science fiction. It's got to start somewhere, and I think things like the Virgin trips are the beginning of that, because now it's no longer just, you know, trained astronauts hmm. that are able to get that's into right. space. Now it's yeah, anybody it's rich that's rich. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I mean, I, I, I think hopefully in my lifetime, I mean, with Virgin's obviously the first step, but eventually I want to get to the point where they realise that instead of flying from New York to London, they should actually just fly... From New York into space and then back down to London and cut the time. Yeah. Like, well, know, there's certainly water to anywhere. Yeah, yeah. and, and there's mad. certainly they're actually the beginnings of that that concept are actually starting to filter down into these. They're yeah. already looking at mm. that as a viable option for travel now. Which of course then will eventually we'll get the you know, 2001 space airport thing, spaceport. Cool stuff. Okay, so <laughs> thank you, Luke. <laughs> Moving on, uh, Crystal with self-controlling slash parking cars. Well, anybody who knows me knows I hate to drive. I loathe to drive, and one of the reasons for that is I have trouble with the outside space of the car, knowing how close it is to objects. So, self-parking cars seem like a godsend to me. <laughs> um, We've seen cars that control themselves in science fiction. Kit stands out. I'd like to mention Herbie the Love Bug, even though it was pointed out to me that's not strictly science fiction, but I think he's cute. Well, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's science fiction. No, it's not science fiction. <laughs> it's magic. It's pretty obvious that he's magical. Well, Is what it? did Arthur C. Clarke say about magic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I guess. I guess, yeah. <laughs> But Kit is clearly, you know, Kit, self-controlling. Well, a personal it's never favorite. defined how Herbie got his powers. So it's like saying Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is, is science fiction. Like a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is, is science fiction. But, uh, it's clearly not. It's a magical car. <laughs> my, one of my personal favourites. They can be fired up on the difference. 90% of science is indistinguishable from magic. No, Herbie and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang are fantasy, which are almost science fiction. All right, let me bring it back to one that is science fiction then. The Johnny Cabs. Yeah, the Johnny, Johnny Cabs from Total Recall. <laughs> there you go. Have a nice day. I was trying to find a list of people that actually manufacture these cars. and According to the Wall Street Journal from last year, there are five manufacturers, Ford, Lexus, Lincoln, Mercury, and Toyota. I think Volkswagen is also one now as well. Golf. The Golf, yeah. Yes. Self parking cars. cars. I love the answer to that photo where the car's parking itself. The guy's in the cafe across the road is like, Struth! Yeah. <laughs> or something ridiculous. Crikey! Crikey! <laughs> it, it, it is an awesome thing to watch. And it's the beginning of the fully self driving car. I know. Yeah. Eventually, without any doubt, um, this technology has shown that, you know, the. The self-parking car can actually then develop into the self-driving car. So eventually, the Johnny Cabs, the kits of the world, I, we will have them. They will become just part of society. It can't come a moment too soon for me. Mm, me too. <laughs> yes. Well, you're 
driving quote unquote <laughs> is um, let's just call it interesting. So I, I personally, for my safety, I want you to get the self-driving car, dude. That's harsh. Only one crash. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you've only driven twice. <laughs> I've had three crashes. Oh, Perfect geez. record. Never. Yes, but you don't drive at all and that's you never one, have. That's one in fact, I'm record. the only person in this room that drives with any sense of regularity at all. Okay, so to finish this off, we have Luke with the moon landing, mm. which never really happened. Okay, so um, Richard has already mentioned uh, space exploration per se, but I think the big thing that we actually did achieve in terms of space exploration that was written about by um, science fiction authors is getting to the moon. Popularised particularly by um, Verne and Wells in their respective novels and the film A Trip to the Moon by George Millet, which was based on the Verne. Um, and the technology is kind of interesting. One, we had we were going up in an air balloon. Yeah. Um, and the other, we were being shot out of a cannon. The cannon um, probably the closest. The cannon's probably yeah. the closest. Um, and I link the um, the hot air balloon with John Carter's getting to Mars by astral projection. Um, <laughs> yes, that's the thing. Does John Carter actually ever go to Mars? Not physically. He doesn't he's physically actually there. He's or not really it, there. Your experience. It's not really space it, it, It's most likely just some sort of opium-induced mm. fantasy that he yeah, has. Yeah, but it's, it's still cool. Does, does he meet Martians? He meets yeah, Martians he meets, with multiple arms well, that have swords. Then he did eventually get there. The closest that probably came in terms of an actual moon landing that was as scientific, ac- scientifically accurate, I think, is the Tintin story, um, Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon, in which you know that he had them kitted out in um, full astronaut gear. He had them go to a rock uh, on, a, on a rocket that was um, pointed that you know shot off into space, had to actually turn and land properly, as opposed to just all the spaceships just you know landing on their flat underbelly. Well, um, what year is that? So, what year is that? Uh, it was the I can't remember the exact year. It was the fifties. Um, it was it was it was certainly a good ten years before good ten years before Apollo eleven. Wow. Um, and therefore before two thousand and one, which yeah. with the Tycho sequence, which yeah. is yeah. incredibly accurate. There's a silent Russian film that is also unbelievably accurate in depicting space travel and moon landing. Wow. Uh, from the nineteenth. 32, 1933, thereabouts. Um, it has zero gravity on the moon and within the spaceship itself, mm. within the rocket that they travel on. It has them needing to wear spacesuits, things like that. It's, it's unbelievably scientifically accurate. The only thing that it, you could fault it for is that it believes that there are deep caverns and mountainous regions on the moon much larger than what we actually have. Mm. And we will provide a link on in the notes to that movie because the title has sort of slipped my mind at the moment yep. Mm. Uh, yep, no, that's what I wanted to say I thought, I think the moon landing is probably certainly one of the biggest achievements that we've undertaken um, that has been written about previously in science fiction that has actually succeeded oh, did it though? Yeah. I don't think it really happened <laughs> Stanley Kubrick filmed it in a soundstage it's a lot of guff mm. where's the proof? Well, yes, if your IQ was, you know, below 73 <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right Stanley Kubrick filmed the, if the my IQ was lane. below 73, I wouldn't even have been able to say the word Stanley Kubrick filmed it in a soundstage. People <laughs> were like, moon landing? <laughs> nah. <laughs> there was a Bunkum. poll... <laughs> there was a poll conducted uh, in the late 1990s um, with, obviously, the year 2000 fast approaching where um, people identified the moon landing as the single most important event 
um, of their lives. Of their lives, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, the Amazing. that was listed as number one. Uh, the Kennedy assassination was listed as number two. So I think that really gives a good indication of just how important the moon landing was. Well, since I didn't live the, during those times, the most important occasion for my life is marrying my man. The moon yeah. a bit close second, though, right? Well, I wasn't alive during that period. <laughs> well, there was. A, now, what do you think I am, dude? I remember at one point. Um, the probably, ability, the, probably the release of Star Wars. Yeah, I was just going to say the, <laughs> the ability to see Star Wars on the big screen was also listed as an important moment in your life. But... And the iPad. <laughs> no, I just I love that. I love it. Every we'll put it on the uh, show notes, but you've got to see that clip of uh, of Buzz Aldrin punching that guy out, <laughs> claiming the moon landing was was fake. Oh, the gold. The evidence. The evidence to suggest the moon landing didn't happen is actually ludicrous and based on a lack of understanding of... Poor science. For, yeah, for of every, science and technology. For every bit of evidence they say shows doesn't happen, you can counter it with logic. Exactly <laughs> right. Happen. I mean, I, I love a good conspiracy more than just about everybody in this room, but even I have to acknowledge that the fake moon landing theory is just stupid. Awesome. Thank you very much, everybody, for that war room. I actually attended the Armageddon Expo here in Melbourne, it was, it's a two-day event where nerds of all sizes and shapes and ages join together to enjoy nerdism in all, all its ways. To celebrate the glory of being a nerd. That's right. Or to dress up like Harry Potter, but, you know. <laughs> I actually didn't see a single Harry Potter that was there. So it was it was a lot of fun. I took a whole heap of photos, which I'll, I'll post, uh, at least some of them, on the website. If you happen to see your photo on the website... Leave a comment, say hi, and tell us about your experience at Armageddon. Yeah, that'd be cool. Nice. Uh, got to meet some interesting people. As an extra added bonus, I got to chat to a couple of comic creators. Uh, them being Frank Cho, who of course is known for the creation of Liberty Meadows and his depictions of uh, beautifully well-endowed females. And Fred Valente, who's a writer for... Uh, both himself and uh, quite a, a slew of books from uh, Marvel, including uh, Marvel Zombies, Herc, uh, Spider-Man, whole heap of stuff. Currently writing Alpha Flight as well. That's right, and uh, he's, he's a pretty cool dude. On a bit of a downer note, uh, the organisation of Armageddon was a bit of a disgrace. Uh, like I'll be right out there. I mean, even with a media pass, uh, which I was told would allow me to interview the stars... Uh, it then turned out that that was actually wasn't the case, uh, and I basically had to wheedle my <laughs> my way to some interviews with some of the to some of the people who you know were happy to discuss things at the time instead of having like actual proper interviews. So uh, the audio quality was uh, you know pretty ordinary, what, not what I would have liked, but I had to do what I had to do at the time. So hopefully, uh, again, we'll figure it out a bit better in the next next time next year. And, uh, but other than that, everything else was cool. Met some really cool people. Uh, so as a special added bonus, like I said, uh, I'm going to have an interview with Mr. Frank Cho. Hey, how's it going? Sure. Oh, actually, I actually have a um, uh, podcast, a new culture podcast, and we cover comics and movies and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Ask away. Awesome. So I was wondering, uh, who is your biggest influence? Uh, in art? Yes, in art, yeah. Uh, there are several people. I mean, uh, I'm a huge Al Williamson fan. 
uh, I'll say Al Williamson, uh, Frank Frazetta, John Basema, Don Newton, uh, and a couple other people. All classics. Excellent. Yeah. So when, when did you first discover that you had a talent for uh, drawing? When did I first discover? Yeah. Uh, probably around fourth grade, fourth, fifth grade, uh, when I realized that all my classmates were coming up to me to have to uh, to draw stuff for them. Excellent. And so you um, you just spend some time as well in the back of the class drawing some sketches when you should have been listening, or? No, I'm out. <laughs> I was actually a really good student. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, I got uh, you know, I got A's and B's, and uh, you know, nice. just drew for fun on the side. Awesome. Who is your favorite character to pencil? Uh, any naked chick. <laughs> any naked chick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and is there anything uh, coming up uh, for you that you'd like the world to know about? Well, I'm doing uh, Guns and Dinos at Image. Uh, first issue is almost done. Uh, I'm trying to have it colored. Uh, and I'm doing, um, I'm doing a big secret Marvel project that I can't say. Of course. And I'm putting the finishing touches on Liberty Meadows Sunday Collection Book. Excellent. So those three are coming uh, coming out in the next uh, three months. Excellent. Next three, four months. Okay. And the secret Marvel project? Uh, Marvel's going to announce it soon, hopefully. Can we just, like, whatever, how about a tip? Is it normal Marvel Universe or ultimate Marvel Universe? Uh, normal. Normal. Uh, okay. Yeah, Excellent. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brian Bendis is writing it. Excellent. And uh, so is uh, Jason Aaron. Okay. So some chances to pencil Spider Woman, maybe? Uh, Actually, yes. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I can't say. That's uh, all we can say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. No worries. And if you uh, couldn't, if you could no longer pencil something, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't draw anymore. What would you, your goal? What would you like to do for a living? Uh, writing. Yeah, probably writing. Yeah. I have no idea. No. <laughs> I have no idea. Probably writing. Writing sounds fun. Sounds fun. Yeah. Awesome. Let's move on. Coming up next, coming soon. So coming soon, uh, the films that are being released in between the period between this podcast and the next. October 27th sees the release of In Time, starring Justin Timberlake and from the director of Gattaca, which we are actually going to review in our next episode. Well, one half of that equation appeals to me. Yep. I'm pretty excited. The, the ad, I've seen other footage other than the trailer for it. The trailer mm. makes it look terrible. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I was like, what is this rubbish? But everything else I've seen about it, interviews, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, I'm, I'm fascinated. It's an intriguing concept. I actually think yeah. it's going to be awesome. As long as we get Gattaca, Andrew, Nickel, and not um, Truman Show, Simone, Andrew, Nickel. Dude, are you serious? Truman Show, brilliant. Except the Truman Show's not him. He, he, no, he wrote it. He wrote, yeah. yeah, he wrote and produced. Truman Show's fantastic. Truman Show, is excellent. Mm. Simone, I'll agree. Yep. Lord of War... If it didn't have Nicolas Cage in it, it would be unwatchable. Yep. But are you serious? Truman Show? Yes, and I'm serious. <laughs> and I should be fair. See this? This is my serious face. October 27 also has uh, Drive, which is it's pretty stretching it in terms of new culture. But, uh, you know, hey, I think it looks pretty cool and I want to see it, which is why I mentioned it with uh, stars Ryan Gosling. Yeah, that's one of the ones that I'm actually looking forward to a lot. It, it being a noir... Um, yeah, infused um, story. I'm really looking forward to, and, and from what I've heard, it sounds great. It does. Uh, and then November three has horror movie Don't Be Afraid of the Dark with Katie Holmes and Australia's own Guy Pearce. Love Guy Pearce, but I'll be missing this. Are you sure? Yes, I love Guy Pearce. 
No, are you sure it's Guy Pearce? Are you sure it's not some American? Is it Rose Byrne? I'm sure it's Guy Pearce and Katie Holmes. I apologise for the Rose Byrne. I just really like Rose Byrne, and she's in a whole heap of stuff recently. That is true. It was a safe assumption that it was her. And yet it was still more watchable. Never No, Miss Winstead's actually had some good reviews for her performance. I think she's pretty cool from what I've seen her in. She's very pretty. What do you need, really? Uh, and November 3 also has uh, Anonymous, which, once again, pushing the limits on nerd culture, but uh, it's uh, pretty interesting. It's the claims that the Earl of Oxford, Edward D. Vere, was the real writer of Shakespeare's plays, and yeah. has a bit of a thriller yeah, element a to it. A bit of conspiracy there. Yeah, that's, a, that's sort of one that I'm also curious about as well, because yeah. there's something slightly unusual about the um, about the concept. So. Yeah, you know what, I think if it appeals to us, we can call it nerd culture. Mm. That's right. And uh, NCP's favourite cinema, The Aster, is showing a whole heap of films during that two-week period, of course, because they show multiple films every day. Uh, But a couple of highlights for me is all three of the classic Dead films on October 30, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and all three Back to the Future films on November 5th. Awesome. Um, Yeah, so as well as a slew of other great stuff. So check out their full listings at www.astertheatre.net.au. Note is a different web address to the one I posted in the last episode because they've changed it since then. So that's pretty cool. We're up to date here at NCP. Coming up next, feedback. So for this edition of feedback, we're actually going to uh, let Richo take the reins. Go for it. As our listeners will know, on our last couple of episodes, we've been reviewing DC's 52 the new comic book relaunch of all their titles. Most of the people at NCP are comic book readers and long-time comic fans. I wonder how said most. <laughs> but we did put out a call uh, for our listeners, if you were a new comic reader, to let us know what you thought of the new 52. And Michael from Tasmania got in touch with us, and I was actually fortunate enough to be able to sit down with him and do a recorded interview which we're just going to play back here and uh, get his thoughts as a relatively new comic reader. He's been reading for less than a year. So he was exactly the kind of person that we wanted to get feedback from. Pretty exciting. I love our our, uh, recorded feedback. (laughs) It's good stuff, isn't it? So here we have it, Michael from Tasmania and his thoughts on DC's New 52. So we're here with Michael from Tasmania. G'day. How are you, man? Good, brother. How are you going? Not too bad. Michael responded to our request for new comic readers uh, to give us their feedback on the new DC 52. Yeah. So, let's start. Michael. Yep. Uh, how long have you been reading comics for? Uh, since about the end of October last year, I started seriously reading comics. Alright, so yeah. just under a year now. Yeah, it's coming up my anniversary. Fantastic. <laughs> Alright, so um, were you reading DC books before the relaunch? Uh, yeah, I, was, I started off on the Batman books. Because yeah, I've always been a big Batman fan, like yeah. the women, so <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. you know, I know. But yeah, I was, then I was gradually introducing myself to other characters, and then Green Arrow is one of my favourite characters. So okay. anything I got, anything Green Arrow, I got it. Then I got recommended the Green Lantern series, so I started getting the trades of that. But I basically the only real issues I bought were the Batman issues and Generate uh, Justice League Generation Lost. But I basically bought like Green Lantern trades and you know, Green Arrow stuff. That's all good stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, and uh, okay. Obviously, well, we're now yeah. a month into the the relaunch, relaunch and yeah. uh, uh, how many books have you picked up in for the relaunch? 
Um, I've picked up the majority of them. I've, I haven't got every single one because I, some of them just don't really appeal to me. Yep. You know, I didn't feel like getting every one. I've got the majority of the Batmans. I've got Superman, Superboy. I've got a couple more obscure ones like Demon Knights, Grifter, Blue Beetle, the Green Lanterns, Green Lantern Corps, uh, Suicide Squad. And uh, right, as a new reader, yeah. um, how well have these number ones worked for you? Oh, they're hit and miss, really. They, you know, some are brilliant, but most of them are just relying. Like if I didn't have a background of superheroes or you know the general DC universe from being a nerd, <laughs> then, then I'd be like, um, what's going on here? <laughs> In most of them, like. I like if you picked up Green Lantern number one, and you'd never read Green Lantern before, you'd be like, "What's going on here? Yeah. Who are these people? What have they done? <laughs> Why are they wearing green? How come their ring is so powerful?" <laughs> right. So you're yeah. saying the Green Lantern then, as a first issue, didn't really? Well, it's not a first issue. Right. <laughs> it's a continuation, but renumbered. Yeah. So that's like if I was an absolute brand new reader, I, I would be completely lost. But luckily, I had read Green Lantern previously I had yeah. the trade so I had some knowledge of what's going on. Also, you know, I've been told what's been happening right. and keeping up with it and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got Green Arrow. <laughs> what's up with Justin Hartley in my comic book? So I, I, I watch him on Smallville, not in my comic book. <laughs> so obviously you were reading Green Arrow beforehand and you yes. picked up this new book. Like, a lot of people didn't like the previous series of Green Arrow. And I thought they were crazy because I loved it. Yeah. But I think a lot of that's also a lot of... Um, I've, I've discovered online so many people are cynical about comics. <laughs> I find it hard to read those forums. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, skip ahead to the real comments. <laughs> but I just read the, com read the last series and I just loved it. Because it's just Ollie being Ollie, you know. Yeah. He's unsure of his position, and you know. And, but he does everything in his power to improve it and do his best. And, yeah. You know, he, he's just a brilliant character. Whereas then I've gotten Justin Hartley, who's just some dude who's got some technology and, and a poor writer behind <laughs> him. Like, I'm sure she's a perfectly good writer, but not on that book. Okay, so obviously Green Arrow didn't work for you? No. <laughs> what? Um, and, and I read Batman The Dark Knight, and I'm like, Oh, I can't even describe it. It was, it was insanely bad. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's look at the positives yeah, first. What yeah. were the books that did work for Okay, you? well, Captain Adam, okay. I thought that was brilliant. Uh, Blue Beetle, that's probably my favourite one so far in terms of introducing a new, new reader to the series. Like, I knew okay. a bit about Blue Beetle from Justice League International and Generation Lost. So I had a bit of a background with Jamie Reyes, and I've been reading the previous Booster Gold, and he was involved in that as well. So, in in that sense, I think it just was a book that introduced you to Jamie Reyes, that made you feel connected to the character, because it showed you his background, where he came from, how the Scarab came to existence, and then you know attached itself to Jamie Reyes and how he's become the Blue Beetle. It's like if I I've read that. I can't wait for the next issue. You know? okay. um, Any other first issues that really worked? Batman, 
the the straight Batman was brilliant. Justice League International. Yeah. But that also yeah, yeah, that's some of my favourite characters. So <laughs> I'm a bit biased and that you know because you can't go past Mr. Gold. Yeah. You know I tell you. <laughs> He's a man. <laughs> but no, really, that that the way they set up the Justice League International story compared to the Justice League of America, yeah. it's like instead of a comic book with two characters, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's these are two characters, and here's one page of Victor Creek. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Justice League International. Here's a story. Oh, wicked. <laughs> okay, so that's good. Justice League worked. Blue Beetle worked well. Yeah, Blue oh, Beetle worked, worked well. Yeah, Captain Adam. I thought yeah. that was pretty good because I find Captain Adam so interesting. Yeah. He's got so much power and it's just consuming him. But he's so noble in what he's going to do. I don't know. Like, for me, and it, and, it, and it kind of had to know a little bit about Captain Adam, but I don't think a regular, like a brand new reader would have kind of picked that one up straight away, yeah. if you know what I mean, like they would have gone Batman or Superman or something like that, and then like if you pick up Justice League International and you read a bit about Captain Adam and then you go and pick that up, you'll be like whoa, this is all I expected it to be. Were there any books that you just uh, bought without any prior knowledge yes, at all? Yes, there was a couple, Grifter yep. and I was pleasantly surprised by it. I mean, I had no idea who the bloke was. Actually, that's one, I normally, how I started was, I judged them by their covers. Right. Because I just went for a chance on um, Grifter, and I, and I think it's paying off. I've got the second issue, but I haven't read it yet. Okay. And Demon Knights, I, going back to Green Arrow, Erdogan, I think you say his name. Etrigan. Etrigan, was in the previous series of Green Arrow that I was reading, and I think, that's a really interesting character how a demon is trapped inside another man's body yep. and he's from Arthurian times and I love that sort of stuff I love medieval sort of stuff so I'm like yeah I'm going to give this one a go and it was really good it was just oh, excellent you know it was it was simple yeah it wasn't uh, they didn't try and overcomplicate anything yeah which I think they've done in certain books like the Justice League book and you know the bat Probably the Dark Knight book, they're just like the actual Batman book and just kind of warped it. Yeah. yeah. They tried too hard with it, whereas yeah. Batman 1 just had this brilliant story. It was easy, nice and flowing, and it had detective work, had Bruce Wayne being a philanthropist, and it, it just it fit. Whereas Dark Knight took that idea and went the opposite direction for it, and it just wasn't right. Um, Alright, well let's just, just to wrap this up then. I mean, giant Two-Face doesn't do it for me either. I like normal size Two-Face. <laughs> Alright, yeah. best book of the relaunch so far, and worst book of the relaunch so far. Okay, best book, Blue Beetle. Okay. Yep, Blue Beetle, I think, best book that I've read. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of good books. Batman, Action Comics was good. Superman was good. Superman was really good. I think yeah. the idea of Superman and taking him back in age, yeah. I think it's worked really well. And that int- like if you're a brand new reader, you're like, oh, he's not married to Lois Lane. Oh, this is what he's doing. And that's what he's doing. It was real clear and it had a nice story to it. Okay. Uh, worst one's definitely Green Arrow. Definitely Green Arrow? That's, that's <laughs> just purely because of my love for normal Green Arrow. Yeah, not Justin Hartley. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is right. it sad that, that, that we know all the small real actors' names? <laughs> Probably, but yeah. he was a major character. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, that wraps that up. Thanks yeah. very much, Michael Fantasi. No worries. So thank you very much, Michael, for taking the time out to do an interview with us and to give us your feedback. It was uh, interesting to hear and... Uh, yeah, to get your thoughts. Uh, you agreed with some of the things we said and disagreed with others. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome, Michael. Thank you very much. Very entertaining. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again, Michael. So that's it for this episode. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to have uh, Popcorn Junkie on in time, as mentioned, and uh, another war room to follow up on this one, the sci-fi predictions that haven't come true yet. I do point out yet. They better. They better come, but uh, the ones that we're, as Richard would say it, where science fiction has failed us. So don't forget, you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post it on a Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at at nerdculturecast. You can also leave a comment on any of the stories on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast heard us mention show notes a couple of times during this episode we're going to start a new thing when you look at our website for this episode we'll have some show notes to add to it yes so check those out it was an excellent idea from young crystal who is decided that we will post up whatever uh so links to extra information about things that we discussed and stuff like that and if we missed anything and you want some information about it put a comment there and we'll give you that information sure thing nerd culture podcast entertaining and informative so thanks for joining me, the NCP crew. We've got Richard. The stars are my destination. Crystal. The stars will be my destination if science fiction doesn't fail us. Fail! And Luke. Gully Foyle, the best science fiction prediction yet. Well, I hope it's not a prediction. <laughs> Bye. Bye now. Bye, everybody. Okay, all right, so let's get moving. Hey? Yeah. Good to go? Yeah, yes, Canadian Waldo. Hey? <laughs> oh, you know, that, that sounds like... I've probably done it once in my entire life. And yeah. you, or you pick on it straight away. Yep. That's how you roll. So I've been reading uh, Alpha Flight Classics Volume 2, so <laughs> <laughs> got to be the Canadian thing in mind. The puck, eh? That's right.